Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I've got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, nominations, you can you can make one nomination. You nominate one game, and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on. And it can be any platform. It can be an arcade game. It can be a PC, Mac, uh, Xbox, PS3, Nintendo, handheld console. It can be web-based, if you like. But just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes. So you can nominate your game either through email, which is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can nominate through Twitter or Facebook. And we're going to put a uh, cutoff date on this. I, I want to have the episode go up by the end of September of 2011. So let's say you need to get your nominations in by September 8th, 2011. So if you get those nominations into us, we will make sure we include those in the process and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, and for some reason twisting up a rubber dinosaur, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Little darling, the smiles returning to the faces. Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here. <laughs> that was a nice choice for today's topic, Thank which you. is... Uh, I think something that everyone will find electrifying. Yeah, and in fact, this comes to us courtesy of a Google Plus suggestion. This comes from Adam, who says, This may be a bit simple, but have you guys ever done an overview of solar technology and solar tech history? Just re-listened to your battery podcast, and it made me wonder more about alternative energy sources. Uh, Adam, um your definition of simple and my definition of simple are two very different things. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, solar power, solar cells, also known as photovoltaic cells, and, uh, kind of, um, where it came from. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, they're not, they're certainly not new. Um, we have an article about how solar cells work on the website. Yep. Um, which discusses how they were used in the 1950s in yeah. space, uh, space technology. Yeah. In fact, the, uh, well, to go back even further, the the photoelectric effect, which of course is the the basis of photovoltaic cells, yes, um, that was first discovered by a uh, or at least first um, observed by a French physicist named Edmond Becquerel. Aha! It was in 1839. Wow, that was uh, some time ago. Yeah. Now, granted, he observed that certain materials, uh, if if exposed to sunlight would uh, produce a certain amount of electric current. Uh, but there wasn't really any way of putting that to any use at the time. It was just it was an interesting scientific observation and that was the the limit of it. Uh, Einstein himself uh, began to ruminate on this, decide about you know to kind of think about what is the nature of light, how does it interact with the nature of electricity? what's the relationship there? Um, 
And then he actually won a Nobel Prize based on on his observations. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the first module, photovoltaic module, because a module is a collection of photovoltaic cells. Right. In fact, we can get this out of the way in, uh, really early on. If you want to talk about like the a sense of scale, mm-hmm. a, an individual photovoltaic cell, uh, when grouped together with other photovoltaic cells, makes a module. And groups of modules together make an array. Right. So it's just a it's just a, a question of scale. So an array isn't a group of modules. A module is a group of photo, photovoltaic cells. I'm going to stumble over that over and over in this episode. So I hope you guys are listening at twice speed so that the chipmunk is messing up over and over, not me. Anyway, the first module was built by Bell Laboratories, and that was in 1954. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, they were thinking of it kind of they, – I think they called it a solar battery. They didn't even call it a, a solar cell at that point. And uh, it was – Kind of considered to be an interesting idea, but not at all practical. I think uh, they determined that based upon the amount of work and uh, it took to develop and manufacture that first uh, module, they were getting about uh, a watt for every – I think it was 250 bucks per watt. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is not efficient. <laughs> no. It doesn't even compare to other materials at all. That's somewhat expensive. Right. So not something that they could implement immediately in order to, to try and generate electricity. And, and then later on in the 50s and then into the 60s, really primarily in the 60s, uh, that's when the space industry began to use these solar cells in order to, uh, to get power for, uh, vehicles that be traveling through space and, and also satellites. That would be placed in orbit around the Earth. You know, you have to have power going to these satellites somehow. And yeah, you know, beep. <laughs> batteries can provide power, beep. But power batteries will die out, and there's no way of uh, recharging them easily when you can't tether the device to the Earth. Beep. Uh, okay, Sputnik. Enough of that. Um, so, solar cells were a way to be uh, for for satellites to gather power and remain in orbit, uh, functioning properly mm-hmm. for longer. Um, now, why are we even talking about solar power in the first place? Well, mainly because it's abundant and one would imagine inexpensive. I mean, you've got uh, a, about a thousand watts of energy per square meter of the planet's surface. Yeah, that's a lot of energy. Uh, you know, the sun shoots out lots and lots of energy toward mm-hmm. the Earth. I mean, really, the sun shoots out lots of energy everywhere, but we on earth are happy to receive quite a bit of it uh and we some of it gets absorbed in the atmosphere some of it gets absorbed by the surface of the earth uh some of it is converted into uh energy via photosynthesis by vegetation and then the rest of it just kind of gets reflected back off into space so there's all this energy that is not being used in any meaningful way at all mm-hmm. and it's just it's going away and uh, so the the thought is using solar cell technology, we could perhaps harness some of this energy that otherwise we would just lose. Um, and that's the basis behind the 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 push for solar energy. Now, the engineering challenges that face us as we try to actually harness that power are what kind of keep us from just adopting it wholesale. That and also. I mean, there's some practical problems besides the engineering issues, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you live in a place where there's not a lot of, you don't get a lot of uh, sun, then solar energy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It would be a lot. It would be a, a heavy uh, investment for very little payoff. 
Um, now, if you live in a place that tends to get sun most of the year, then solar cells make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the basics involve something that we've talked about many times in the show, semiconductors. Yes. Which is a material that allows some electrons to flow, but not all the available electrons to flow. Yeah. Permits it, some flow of electricity, but not. It, it, there's some control. Right. It acts somewhat like a conductor and somewhat like an insulator. Yep. And uh, and and it's the relationship between the semiconductor and photons, which are the particles uh, that we, you know, units of light energy, really, mm-hmm. um, because you talk about how light can be both a wave and a particle, but really, you talk about a photon having a certain amount of energy, um, and the energy has to be enough to cause the semiconductor to conduct electricity. And I guess we can get into how that works and, and the, the basis behind that. And uh, really, it comes down to things like uh, silicon and crystals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it's possible. I, I, I should say up front that it's not always silicon. That's true. But That's true. Silicon being the predominant material that's yeah. used. I think for, for the purposes of, of this early part of the discussion, I think we should think of the solar cells that you see mounted on roofs and, sure. and different places because those are the ones with which most of us are familiar. So, yeah, yeah the, the dominant semiconductor used in that is silicon. Right. So in order to understand how the solar cells work, we got, we're going to have to take a little uh, a little chemistry lesson here and, okay. and learn more about silicon itself. So silicon is an atom that has 14 electrons. Yep. There are three different shells, um, and the first two – are uh, are full. Yeah. There are two and eight electrons, but uh, the, the outer, outer shell, shell. Mm-hmm. Ha- has room for eight, but generally only has four. Right. So, uh, you know, the the shells. In case you you don't remember, the shells are essentially they represent a a general space around the nucleus of the atom, where electrons are capable of existing. And because electrons are negatively charged and and like charge. Uh, 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 What's the word? Repulse. Thank you. It just escaped Repel? my repulsed or repelled. Yes, that those those sometimes push those away words, from. Thank you. I, yeah, I was like, think they don't like each other. I was like, that's probably not quite as sophisticated as our listeners uh, expect. Well, they expect it from me. Act thank like you like each other. Thank goodness you're here. Yeah. Smile. So so like like charges repel one another. Thank you, Mister Paulette. Without you, I would have just been. Sitting here quiet, and Matt would have been snickering in the other room. Um, His face was getting really red. It was really entertaining. Yeah, you know, it happens. Sometimes my brain just gives out on me. So yes, like getting back to it, like charge repels like. So, Mm -hmm. so these electron shells represent a space where electrons are capable of of existing, and and you can't have more electrons in that space because the negative charges would push push the electrons out. So then the second shell, that's the one where you can have up to eight electrons there. Uh, and then the third shell, up to eight can exist there, but only four are there in a, in a silicon atom. So if you, you know, th- th- there's room for more electrons there. In a way, I, I, I hesitate to use the word want because it suggests sentience, but it's, it's, these atoms are not, as far as we know, sentient in any way. Tend to. Yeah. They, there is a, a, uh, there's a tendency for these atoms to require more electrons in that final shell, to have a full outer shell. Yes. Right? That's that's the goal of these atoms, as if there were like some sort of 
right. conscious goal. So, so when you get a whole lot of silicon atoms together, yeah, they tend to bond, bond together, yeah, um, because they they begin to share electrons in their outer shells, and right. so they get really really tight. So a silicon atom will bond with four other silicon atoms to fill up that outer shell. And each of those silicon atoms are bonding to up with up to four other silicon atoms to fill up their outer shell. And this creates a crystalline structure. And they bond with four friends. And, and they, they – and so on. And so on. And so, so, on. <laughs> so, yeah, you get this crystalline structure. Now, once you have this – we're talking right now about a pure silicon crystalline structure, right? Right. So when you get all these, these outer shells full of electrons – there's a problem in that it doesn't really conduct electricity at that point, yeah, right? Because yeah. you don't have any free electrons, free reigning electrons to uh, to move through that material. So if you introduce electricity, it's hard. It takes a lot more energy to break the electrons out of those bonds so that they will flow through. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can do it, but you have to put a lot of energy into the system. Yeah, what you're looking for here is free carriers. Yeah. The electrons that are wandering around um that will allow you to conduct electricity, you know, if there are a lot of them. Yep. Um so what you have to do next is really dope. Yeah. Yeah, you have to dope the silicon. Now that means that you are introducing impurities or other elder ingredients, if you will, into the silicon crystal. Right. So, you know, you think about impurities and usually that has a negative connotation to it. But in this case, it's something that's really necessary. You can put uh, there. No, there are two different routes to go. Right. You can put Mm -hmm. in atoms into you can introduce atoms into this mixture that have more electrons in their outer shell than silicon does. Uh Now, that's going to introduce extra electrons into this crystalline structure, some electrons that are not bonded with other atoms. Mm -hmm. So that's where you've got these free carriers. And then it doesn't take as much energy when you introduce energy into the system to break those electrons free from the the structure. Um, It still requires energy because those electrons are still attracted to the, um, the positively charged nucleus. But it doesn't take as much as if uh, all the atoms were bonded to one another uh, mm-hmm. with no free electrons. Yeah, if you used, for example, phosphorus and uh, introduced that to pure silicon. First of all, they would really hit it off at the party. Yes. You know. Oh, wait, I'm thinking of introducing in a totally different way. Right. Anyway. So if you dope some pure silicon with uh, with phosphorus, yeah. um, you would add you would essentially be adding free electrons or a source of free electrons, let's right. say that. And that would create uh, an N-type uh, semiconductor. Yeah, N meaning negative. Because, yes. again, electrons have a negative charge. So you've actually got more of a negative charge than a positive charge because you have these extra electrons out uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. Uh, now, if you were to introduce a material that had fewer electrons in its outer shell than silicon, you would end up with um, spaces for electrons where no electrons exist. Mm-hmm. That would be a P type of silicon. Yes. Because you would have uh, space for electrons, but there would be no electron to fill that space. Now, if you were to take these two types of silicon, the N type and the P type, and put them together, then the ele- the extra electrons from the N type want to go, and again, want being just, they tend to go to the P type because there's a positive hole there and you have the negative charged electrons in the n-type. So there's this uh, immediate desire to transfer or tendency to transfer. Chris is just laughing because I'm adding – I'm anthropomorphizing uh, electrons. Look, some of my best friends are free carriers, okay? 
Hey, let's go to the pee time. Oh, man. <laughs> it's too uh, early. <laughs> I anyway. just want to see the animated version of this with the little, you know, the electrons <laughs> with little faces drawn on them. That big smile. Like, yeah. Hey, see, so you got a hole there. I can fill that. So the, uh, yeah, there's this tendency for the electrons to move across. Well, this creates, this actually can create a barrier that acts like a diode. And if you've listened to our uh, basic electronics podcast, you know that a diode is this um, channel that allows electricity to flow one way, but not back in the other direction. So it's, it's a, a one-way street. Exactly. And in this case, interestingly enough, it will allow electrons to transfer from the P side to the N side, but not the other way around. Uh-oh. Yeah. So uh, Because that's not what they normally want to do. Right. So... Now, this is where we finally get into introducing photons into this system. Right. All right. So you've got this, you've got the system here where you've got the, this barrier between the, uh, N-type silicon and the P-type silicon. And you've got the, uh, the potential for electrons to move across this barrier if you introduce energy into the system. And the photons are that energy. Mm-hmm. So when a photon uh, of a proper amount of energy strikes the silicon, uh, it can create enough energy for the electrons to m- transfer across this barrier. Now, once the electrons cro- cross that barrier from the p-type to the n-type, uh, they are now in a negatively charged environment. Mm-hmm. So the the tendency is for these electrons to try and get back to the positively charged environment, but they can't pass that barrier. Dun dun dun. So if you were to create a pathway from the negative side to the positive side, the electrons would follow that pathway and do whatever it was you wanted them to do if it meant they could get to the positive side on the other end. So it's other, in other words, it's like a really exclusive party and you're like, okay, you can come into the party, but you gotta, uh, carry my stuff into the room with you. And the people who want to get in the party are like, totally, the party is worth it. I will carry your stuff. That's kind of the, the analogy I'm going with here. There's a party I want to go to tonight. Did I mention that? <laughs> anyway, so. So do you, do you have to, uh, power somebody's computer to do it? No. Fortunately not. So the electrons, uh, will do work along this pathway. And that's just a basic circuit, right? It's a. Yeah. And, and it's, it allows current to flow. So photon hits the silicon, uh, and as long as the photon has enough energy to break that bond, the electron goes across the barrier, wants to get back to the P side, will go through this pathway to get back to the P side, and along the way will do work. So that work might be lighting a light bulb. Right. That's the basic example that you see in most uh, uh, sure. uh, drawings. So that's that's the basic principle. Now, we got to address a couple of other minor points <laughs> that actually play a big role in, in uh, why solar cells work and why they aren't as um, – uh, why we don't see them everywhere right now. Yeah. You mean like um, the fact that, uh, well, there are other components to the, the solar cells too. Yeah, like, sure. You know, how light bounces off stuff like pff, silicon. Right. Silicon tends to be very shiny, which means that some photons, when they strike the surface, are just going to reflect off and not get absorbed at all, which is a problem. If you're not absorbing the energy, then you cannot uh, – you, you don't have enough energy for the electrons to break free. By the way, that, that we call that the band gap energy to, mm-hmm. to break free of that, that final uh, electron shell. So one problem is that not all photons have the same amount of energy. Right. Because light comes in a variety of forms. You know, 
Mm-hmm. We talk yeah. about the spectrum of light. Right. So, you know, you can see light, like visible light, and has a pretty wide spectrum, but even beyond that uh, is an even wider spectrum. Yeah. Infrared light, ultraviolet light, right. et cetera. And then, you know, of course, all the different colors. Well, each of those types of, of uh, light have a different amount of energy. Mm-hmm. And if the energy is not sufficient to, uh, to overcome the band gap energy, that electron's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if the energy is more than what the band gap needs, that electron will move, but some of that energy is wasted. Right. Like, for example, if I need, if I can lift 110 pounds and there's a, uh, a weight in front of me that's 100 pounds, I can lift that up. But if there are two weights that are 100 pounds, I'm still only going to be able to lift one up. Even though I'm capable of lifting over 100 pounds, I'm not capable of lifting 200 pounds. Right. So if you get a photon that actually has, say, twice as much energy as the band gap energy, then you could actually move two electrons mm-hmm. per photon. Um, so that's another problem. So how do we get past the reflective problem? Well, usually they get around it by putting on um, some kind of material that is an anti-reflective property. Right. Um, just to keep the the, uh, the photons from bouncing away. Yeah. Um, and that, that's one thing they have to do. They also have to, uh, put a cover plate on it, you know, glass, mm-hmm. essentially, to keep the, uh, the solar cell from being damaged. Because again, we were talking about the, the solar cells that you see, the arrays that you see in, uh, on rooftops and, um, and for, in some instances on the side of the, I see a lot of them on the side of the road where they have, uh, some kind of equipment there, uh, you know, a sign or something that they want to use to, uh, you know, to, provide messages for, to people who are traveling on the roadway, they'll have a giant, or not a giant, but a large solar panel out there to help power the sign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's sitting out there all the time. So, you know, you don't want it to be damaged by the rain or or anything. Sure. Um, so, you know, you have to have these other things that are that are going on. But unfortunately, these uh, these solar cells are not particularly efficient. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a, there's several reasons why efficiency is a problem. One of those is, uh, you know, I mentioned the whole band gap energy problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, one temptation would be to build a solar cell that would be able to, to gather as many photons as possible. In other words, right. aim for the lowest common denominator, like create material that's going to have the lowest band gap energy uh, so that even weak photons – would be able to make electrons flow. Well, here's the problem with that. Current is is that would be the number of electrons that move through a system, mm-hmm. right? But there's another element called voltage. Right. And and voltage is more like if you want to think of it in terms of plumbing, voltage would be the pressure. Yes. And current would be the amount of water. Mm-hmm. Um so Voltage and current together, you, when you combine the two together, you, you get power. That's the product of current and voltage. Right. So you multiply the two and you get power. Mm-hmm. So the power from any system is going to be dependent upon the current and the voltage. If you use material that has a low band gap energy, you get a lower voltage in that system. Mm-hmm. So you've actually decreased the voltage. So the current increases, but the voltage decreases. So the product does not necessarily uh, become enough for it to be a good return on investment. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you could create something that creates, has more current, but a lower voltage, the power is less. It does, it doesn't do as much work as say materials that have a higher band gap energy, even though you've, even though you are discounting more photons in that, in that other system, mm-hmm. the photons that are hitting are producing more energy. Um, 
So that's one issue. Although you can kind of work around that uh, in a way. You can create a, uh, a multi-junction cell. And a multi-junction cell is, uh, you can think of that as layers of cells on top of one another. And one layer has a certain band gap energy. And then the next one has a different band gap energy. And the next one has a, yet another band gap energy mm-hmm. in order to capture as many of these photons as possible. And that will help a little bit. So that's one way you can do it. It's a very expensive thing to do, but NASA has been doing it for years. Yeah. That's, that's what NASA solar cells tend to be are um, multi-junction cells because – you know, you want to, you want the satellites to last a really long time. Right. So, um, and you want them to be very efficient. Uh, but that's one problem with efficiency. Uh, another is just the design of the, the solar cells themselves. Uh, in order for these electrons to hit a pathway, a circuit, you know, they have to, they have, you have to create that pathway for them. And that raises some challenges. Where do you put, uh, how do you create this pathway? The top of the solar cell, you, it's hard to make a conductive layer, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, usually we tend to use metal. Yeah. Metal's a good conductor. Most metals are good conductors. Yeah, and the uh, the series resistance uh, of silicon is so high that it yeah. causes a lot of loss. I mean, if you're right. using something like copper, right. it would do great. Yeah, but copper doesn't have that photovoltaic quality. Exactly. There's the problem. So if you're using metal to conduct the electricity, uh, to act as the circuit, to, to act as the pathway for these electrons um, – the, the question is, well, you can't really – you can't encase it in metal because if you did, then no photons would get through. Mm-hmm. There has to be at least one side open. You know, you can create some conductive material that is uh, – you can you can weave through the glass. But there's also a concern that, you know, photons are these tiny, tiny, tiny particles. Right. And even the thinnest metal material that might make up a grid in a solar module, for example – uh, will block some electron, uh, photons rather, mm-hmm. which means that you're losing, uh, efficiency that way. So that's, that's one of the reasons why solar panels can have problems with efficiency is that just based on the design itself, in order to conduct those electrons and, and provide electricity, uh, you're blocking off some of the photons. So you're never going to get 100% efficiency because just based on the, the technology itself, it's blocking its own source of power. Hmm. That's frustrating. Photons! <laughs> Fist shake. Yep. So they've been working on trying other types of materials. Yep. Uh, stuff like amorphous silicon, cadmium telluride, and copper iridium gallium deselenide. Oh, I had some of that the other day. It was delish. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these are, um, using these materials, uh, you know, they, they've been trying to find some advantages. One of those is that with some of those materials, you can create a thinner material. A thinner panel or thinner, yeah, yeah. thinner cell. Yeah, they call them thin film solar cells. Yeah. And basically. These are pretty neat. Yeah, these are very neat because, um, a lot of the, again, the arrays that we had in our initial example are, pretty solid. Yeah. They don't they don't bend. And the thin no, film solar they do cells. Break. Yes, they do break. But um actually a couple companies have found ways to print thin film solar cells by mm-hmm. spraying an an ink made with these materials onto foil. Um which is really cool because uh it enables it to be somewhat flexible and you can use it in places uh these types of solar cells in ways that you wouldn't be able to otherwise mm-hmm. um and really you could see something like this on um a handheld calculator 
because those solar cells, uh, you know, the little itty bitty ones, um, are thinner than the, uh, the ones that you see on, on rooftops and in different places like that. Um, the thing is the, uh, they're about 50% efficient at maximum, um, which is more likely to be more like 15 to 25% efficient. Right. Um, which is, of course, also south of the 40% efficiency that they strive for with the, uh, the silicon based wafer cells, the hard cells. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, they're getting to be more of a reality. This is, uh, something that's been in development for several years now. Sure. Um, and they're, you're seeing them in more places, but they also have their drawbacks. Right. You know, and you know, there are other drawbacks with solar panels as well. I mean, the efficiency is a big one because, and the the less efficient a solar array is, the more cells you're going to need in order to generate the electricity you want, mm-hmm. right? You, know, you and in general, big areas that get a lot of sun, that's that's your prime uh, target for any sort of solar power facility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it's one thing to put solar cells up, uh, over your, the roof of your house. It's very difficult to generate enough power to actually. Uh, be completely subsist just on on solar power. For one thing, if you're if it's if you're using the power as soon as it's generated, then you're only going to be able to use power during the day and on a sunny day at that. Right. So you're going to have to have batteries. Yeah, some sort of storage medium in order to uh, to store power and use it later. And just frankly, I, I don't think there are that many houses that are have enough efficient solar panels to just rely on solar energy and battery backup. Now there are some. And in fact, uh, I've, I've heard stories about people who are still connected to the electricity grid who are using solar power predominantly in their mm-hmm. houses. And, um, and in some cases, if they generate more electricity than they are consuming, mm-hmm. they can actually feed energy back into the grid and the, their power company will, uh, compensate them for that, right. which is a nice benefit, especially because these solar arrays can be very expensive to install. Right. And usually that'll mean, I mean, if you are in the right area and you've got the right kind of solar cells, mm-hmm. then you may actually make enough where you're making money from the power company. But right. more often, it's yeah. a reduction in your power bill. Yeah. Like, first of all, your power bill is not going to be that high anyway because you're mostly relying on the solar cells and the power company is providing whatever amount left over uh, you require. But then occasionally you produce more than what you need. Uh, so your bill will just be lower at the end. Yeah, it's not like you're you can recoup your investment overnight or over yeah. sunny day. Right, especially uh, yeah, and if you happen to have uh, a stretch of time where it's just overcast day after day after day, then that those are days when you're not really going to be producing that much power. Um, not to say that it isn't worthwhile. No, no. But it, it you know don't expect a, a you know to make it back up right. immediately. And it, another, it will take some time. Another difficulty is that some. Depending on the materials that are going into those solar panels, they may or may not be uh, either rare earth uh, metals, which there, there's a whole host of problems. We, if you've heard our, our uh, podcast on rare earth materials, then you know, you know that that has its own host of issues as well. Yeah. Uh, there's also the possibility of, depending on, again on the material in the solar cell, there may be very toxic material yes. in there, mm-hmm. or material that may not itself be toxic, but the manufacturing process of that material itself produces toxic toxic materials. So there is the potential for solar power to do environmental harm indirectly. You know, the actual production of electricity isn't environmentally 
destructive, but the pro- process of building those solar panels itself may be. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at the big picture and the full uh, impact of the system. You can't just look at, hey, you know, I'm getting energy from the sun. I'm not burning any fossil fuels. Uh, this is clean energy. Everything's hunky dory. You have to look beyond that in order to really consider the impact of the the system. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, I mean, eventually you get to a point where you're looking at it from such a big picture that you're thinking, there's no solutions out there. Good night, kids. <laughs> well, I think. Uh well, we sort of talked about it in other podcasts too, like the Bloom Box and other other things. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, in the long run, I think it's a, a con- it's going to end up being a combination of solutions, you know, mm-hmm. to get off of fossil fuels rather than just a single, uh, you know, single one. I think it'll probably involve Jack Russell Terriers on a treadmill. It might, and it might very well. Because as far as I can tell, they have an inexhaustible supply of energy. Yeah, especially if you if you. You know, have a treat at the end of the uh, uh, the little uh, conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. They'll just run, run, run. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, that was a great discussion about solar panel technology. I hope that answered your question, Adam. Uh, it was a, a fun thing topic to cover. And uh, well, if you guys have suggestions for topics that you would like us to talk about, feel free to let us know. You can contact us on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle at both of those is. Tech stuff HSW, or you can send us an email, and that address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?